Hey, I'm Asad Serket. And I'm Jeremiah Budin. And you're listening to The Appeal, Curb's new podcast. And today in the studio, we have Curved architecture critic Alexandra Lang. Alexandra is going to be explaining architectural renderings to us, and they are a bit of a controversial subject. Renderings often are the single thing that, you know, the general public actually encounters when they think about a building that's about to come to fruition. And it's probably not giving too much away to say that they can often be a little misleading. So stick around. All right, well, thank you for joining us. It's great to see you in person and not just hear your your disembodied voice on on the radio, which we did recently, which was great. Um, Alexandra Lang, for listeners who don't know, is our architecture critic and is fabulous. And she's joined us in the studio today to talk about a perhaps controversial subject, but we're going to dig into it anyway. Maybe because of the controversy is why we're going to dig yeah, into it. Yeah, we don't want to just tackle real. the, the <laughs> lame, bland subjects. Right. Well, this also... Um, shows that curbed can be self-critical since it is really the entire sure. design block yes. industry <laughs> that thrives on our topic today. Yes, we and have, our t- we run our our share of renderings occasionally. Yeah, I um, mean we've had so much buildup. Now we have we should probably yeah. say what the topic is. We are we are talking about <laughs> architectural renderings. Yes, yeah, we're going to tackle architectural renderings today. And for those who don't really know or aren't super familiar with what they are, perhaps you can explain, Alexandra. Well, uh, in a nutshell. Renderings are the photorealistic digital pictures that most architecture projects get made of themselves before they exist in real life. So if you are reading about a project that hasn't been completed yet, the image you're looking at next to the article is probably a rendering. Now, I mean, sort of topic A for me about renderings is how often it's impossible to tell what's a rendering and what's a photograph. And I think a lot of architects on their websites play with that ambiguity. So they look like they've built a giant museum in a major European city, but really it's just their rendering from the competition. We're doing a lot of nodding in the (laughs) studio right now. It's a case of uh, technology almost becoming too good. Yeah, I mean, these things aren't labeled very well. Um, You know, they all come from the architect's office in the same way that later the photography of the project comes from the architect's office. So there you are, you know, peering at your screen, which is made of pixels at this thing, which is made of pixels. And it's just it's impossible to tell if it's real or not. So you've nodded at this a bit, but what exactly are they used for? If you just describe that for an uninitiated audience. Well, Gosh, I feel like they're used for everything. I mean, they're used to set to show a project to the public. They're used to sell condos. Um, They're used to present projects to politicians. They're used in newspapers. They're used in blogs. I mean, the truth is that most people can't read a plan. And in the old days, um, they would have run a grainy black and white photograph of a giant model that an architect made. There's actually a famous one of um, Philip Johnson's horrible towers for Times Square that I can still visualize in my head because... What do they look like? They look, well... I guess they look, they sort of look like the World Financial Center. Um, you know, they have different t- kinds of tops, but done in masonry rather than glass. So they're even chunkier. So it's <laughs> like if the middle of Times Square, instead of still being basically this empty triangle, was filled with these giant chunky buildings that are only different at the top. Yeah. So instead of nodding now, we've just got grimaces happening. In the yeah. 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 So. Um, so anyway, so we move from models to renderings because what what how do you present a project when it doesn't exist yet? Most people can't read plans. They need to look at something three-dimensional. Um, and renderings are a digital way of making a project look three-dimensional. 
but there are all kinds of tricks that you can use to make your project look better. Oh, yes. <laughs> oh, yes. What are, what are those? <laughs> well, um, is your glass building transparent? Mm. That never happens. Um, does your glass building perfectly res- reflect the sky even though it's surrounded by other buildings <laughs> so it would actually be reflecting the other buildings? Um, is the angle that you are rendering is taken from a place that it is impossible to occupy? Unless you're a bird. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, and, and yeah. most renderings actually are aerials. I mean, I think that's something that um, was brought up in a really great piece that you actually sent a- along to us um, a bit ago um, on a website called Failed Architecture. Um, and they were just discussing kind of architectural rendering culture and specific renderings. Because now all the renderings these days have like trees and greenery all over them. Like renderings even in you know, the Netherlands. It's like, that's not a tropical place. Right. And yet there's so much greenery happening on these renderings. Well, in renderings in New York, too, um, the last two Bjarke Ingels projects that have been shown to us in rendering the kind of stacked boxes tower at Two World Trade Center, now probably not happening, and then this um, kind of spiral, um, also stacked boxes building proposed for uh, next to Hudson Yards, both had lots of trees on the balconies, even way up high, you know, even in New York winter. So <laughs> we, don't, we don't think that's happening either. Um, yeah, well, it's funny, there are rendering trends. And I think, well, and which follow architectural trends. So at the moment there, and, and this is something that the failed architecture piece pointed out, there's a real desire for some reason to have skyscrapers with trees growing on the top and up the sides as if your skyscraper is a giant trellis. Yeah. Why do you think that is? You know, I, I think it's partially an evolution of the idea of green and sustainability. I mean, having trees planted on the outside of your building actually has very, very little to do with how sustainable it is. But I think it's a way of kind of saying we're green, we're environmental. Um, in a way that, you know, your list of lead checkboxes really doesn't. Uh, Sorry, almost like a symbolic nod at eco-consciousness. Exactly. And what's funny is that this has been done before. (laughs) Um, Because actually a couple years ago, I wrote about the Warehouser building, which is this SOM building outside of Seattle, um, which was built around 1970. And it's this long building that has planted terraces and is in the middle of this green landscape. And it's made of a kind of, you know, kind of brownish, um, brownish concrete. And it's really like if you look at it, you think, oh, that's a green building. Like that's a, that's a cardboard <laughs> building. And right. Warehouser, of course, is a forest products company. So it perfectly, perfectly embodied the company aesthetic, but I really think it had that kind of like crunchy ground pa- brown paper <laughs> 1970s feeling, which right. at that time was what green looked like. Now I think green looks like glass plus trees. Right, literal and, green. Yeah. Like literal greenery. Exactly. So, yeah. um, so I think that's what these buildings are saying. Yeah, for sure. So I'm curious, what influence, if, if any, do renderings have on your work as a critic when you're actually kind of considering... Um, a building before it's reached its you know final form. Yeah, well, in general, I I prefer not to consider buildings before they reach their final form. I mean, the, you know, the, there are points in in the process of getting a building made where it is important for critics to weigh in when there are kind of pressure points when the building's going um, before politicians or before the public, and critics um, 
can try to influence opinion to get things changed about it or or you know to get projects stopped. Yeah, how often does that work? Um, Out of curiosity, you know, I I, <laughs> I feel like it only works if you work for certain publications. Like, All right. Yeah. Well, we won't name names. Yeah. <laughs> we um, won't. We won't say curbed. <laughs> <laughs> um, but so. I feel like, I mean, well, to be honest, I look at all the design blocks. So I'm consuming renderings all the time. And that's where I'm, you know, I can do kind of trend spotting, like what I've just been talking about um, with seeing Mm -hmm. so many different buildings with green trees sticking out of the top. So I would say that in my life, um, it's mostly, I don't know, you kind of like gauge the temperature of the field. But in terms of actually like looking really hard, at renderings and trying to extract like design information and kind of what you know how the building would actually impact the city I do that somewhat less um, I feel like actually a piece I wrote last year about South Street Seaport and how the very tall tower that shop was proposing would actually you know, not destroy the seaport in my opinion I kind of went back and forth between the renderings of the project and then actual on the ground like visiting the site and trying to kind of um, line them up and put them together in my mind. And, and that, I feel like, is kind of the responsible way to deal with a mm-hmm. rendering because if you just look at the picture, you don't go to the site, you you aren't aware of all these other things like the buildings around it. And, and that's part of the point of a lot of these renderings is to kind of efface everything else but the marquee building. Right, and that was actually a lot of what the failed architecture piece described as a like central problem with renderings as a medium for experiencing architecture, even v- just visually, um, is that you can actually obscure the reality of the context around around the building, you know, the city, the vibrancy on the sidewalk, all of those things that effaced, as you so wonderfully put it. Um, and I'm curious, what did you think of the response that M- MVRDV, the, the Dutch firm that was mentioned in the failed architecture piece, wrote about this piece? Because, you know, their rendering was called out and they got a little a little butt hurt, yeah, which was understandable. <laughs> they got a little huffy. As you, as you so eloquently. <laughs> yes, yes yeah. thank you, thank you, Jeremiah. Yeah. Well, actually, I mean, I thought, um, sorry, to to um, to be offended and then actually, you know, respond at some length and with some consideration is great because that so rarely happens. Yes, snaps all around <laughs> yes. to the folks at MVRDV. Yes, that was, you know, they they used the vehicles wisely, I thought. Um, but it was interesting because I felt like the two pieces were a little bit talking at cross purposes. Um, I mean, first of all, MVRDV, like right at the top of their piece said, you know, renderings are the way the game is played. We're not going to push back at that. <laughs> and that, I mean, you know, points that, for honesty. <laughs> I guess so, but I guess I feel like if you are a highly successful, somewhat avant-garde Dutch practice, if there's anyone that can push back a little bit at the rules of engagement, it is you. And so for them just to capitulate that way wasn't very critical or necessarily very praiseworthy. And then, you know, further down in the and they talked a lot about how their renderers are actually kind of very close to their practice and they work closely with them, which again, great. But I mean, you know, I know other practices that pride themselves on being able to build things exactly the way their renderings look. Right. I mean, exactly like you would hold the rendering up, you know, to the final product and not know the difference. So it is entirely possible to do a realistic rendering. Right. But is it worth but that, doing that? Right. Is, the, is, is, is it worth doing that? 
And MVRDV didn't even say they were doing that. They say, you know, you know, we are using these renderings as a communication tool. And so some, basically sometimes we have to make the glass look transparent because otherwise people can't tell how many floors are in the building. And I think, well, okay. But then <laughs> I don't think that rendering should be done in a photorealistic style. I mean, all of these things are choices. We used to have something called a cutaway drawing that made it very clear you know, they would actually show the wavy line of, you know, a piece of the building cut out so you could see the floors. And it was very clear that that was not, in fact, how the building was going to be built. Um, that was just an illustrative tool. Mm -hmm. So I think that, the, you know, I think that photorealism at this point is kind of too easy. And, and any number of these practices could make a different rendering style their own if their purpose truly is communication. Yeah. Do you, are you a fan of kind of the, the watercolor style and like hand sketch style renderings that oh, firms no, no, like no. Renzo Piano Building <laughs> Workshop do? Um, well, I mean, Renzo has his own, you know, sort of sketch style and he often uses that. And I think that's fine. I mean, to make a rendering then look like a completely other kind of now kind of rarely used drawing technique seems silly to me. I mean, I'm really talking about doing things that are more graphic, doing things um, that are in, you know, colors not found in nature. Like just there are all these different ways to kind of break it up. And um, I, I think that indeed most firms have just com capitulated to the status quo. They know what's going to get published on Curbed or Dazine or Arc Daily. And so they just do it. And um, it doesn't have to be that way. Yeah. What would you propose as an alternative beyond kind of using colors not found in nature and like zhuzhing it up in other ways that are unique to to the, the artistic world rather than the natural world? Well, I think you could also um, kind of embrace the artificiality and render your building in different styles, you know, kind of as a triptych using different techniques, each of which expresses one quality of the building. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, I think they could experiment with black and white. Um, yeah, they you should know, bring you on as a consultant. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I'm full of ideas. You got ideas. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's partially because I mean, I don't, I don't think that most architects spend all day online, and so I feel like we, um, who consume too much architecture media, <laughs> have probably like seen more and kind of know the bullshit quotient of all of this stuff better than anyone. Yes, we know the BQ. Right. Yeah. And I've, yeah. I've always sort of looked at uh, renderings and also just sort of assumed that everybody else was as like, oh yeah, this is like an idealized version and it probably isn't going to look like this. But I guess a lot when people see those, it's just they think like, oh yeah, this is the building. I really yeah. don't think, I mean, I really don't think most people interpret, they, they interpret it as a photograph because right. it looks like what they're used to seeing as a photograph. Yeah. It's interesting that you bring up that point because something Jeremiah and I talked about was just that rendering so often um, really whitewash cities in, in all senses of the word. Like make um, the people in the renderings are always like vaguely Scandinavian and you, and you don't really know why because it's it's New York City and there are people of all, all ethnic backgrounds in, in New York City. Um, what do you think the effect renderings have had just on that, on people's kind of sense of what the urban condition is and what the future of a city looks like? Well, it's interesting. So um, I had a fellowship a couple of years ago, and one of the things I thought I might want to learn how to do was how to do a rendering, because I felt like 
I was seeing so many of them and I didn't really understand how they were made. And so, you know, maybe if I'm, you know, going to become a rendering critic on top of everything else, <laughs> I should know how they work. Um, and basically, it soon became clear to me that my either my brain is too old or I just don't have <laughs> enough time to learn how to render myself. But I did have a few sessions with a woman who was an amazing um, renderer who was then a student at the uh, at the GSD. And she the just, GSD, the Graduate School of Design at Harvard. Yes, okay, yes. Cool. And she just kind of took me through the process of making one with one of the programs. <laughs> this is only with one of your potential <laughs> rendering programs because that was one of the things that I hadn't even realized that you know that there. I think three different programs, and one of them is Rhino, and I've forgotten the other ones, that people use sometimes in combination to make renderings. So I just was like, okay, this is this is not going to be my new thing. This is not <laughs> going to be my second career. But she did take me through the process of making them, which was really illuminating. For instance, I always thought that when people had grass in their renderings, it was the real kind of grass um, that you know, was appropriate to the climate um, that would actually be specified for the project. But it turns out that, you know, when it's 1 a.m. and you're an architecture student and you want to put grass in your project, you can just Google grass <laughs> and, and click images and cut and paste some grass from anywhere. Architecture students take shortcuts? Really? <laughs> yes. Yes. This is going to yes. be a scandal. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Architecture students, you know, don't know about different kinds of grass. <gasps> um, so, and they do much the same thing with the people. Um, and so they Google what exactly? They Google I'm curious. Inquiring minds want to know. Walking people, families, all of this. Wow. And then they cut and paste. And there are websites. Um, Maybe we could actually post a link to one of these websites. I'll remember sure. the name. Um, they're websites that are just filled with people for um, for rendering purposes that have already been cut out and put on a white background, so they're easy to drop into your drawing. So um, somebody clever could probably track, you know, how many renderings some, you know, like family holding hands had been dropped into around the world, and that would be really fascinating. So. If those sites that have all the cutout people tend to have white hipstery people on them, then you will probably see more white hipstery people in your renderings. Well, that's a shame <laughs> because, I, I mean, first of all, that's not what the world looks like. So it's a shame for those reasons. But also I think the renderings are inherently more interesting and more um, engaging because this is what the public is consuming if the renderings actually look like the world. Right, you right. Know, I mean, it's really simple. Yeah. If you're doing a project in a city, you should send out one of your interns to take pictures of people in that city and then make them into your render ghosts. I mean, that would be a smart thing to do, I think. And They should really bring you in as a consultant. <laughs> <laughs> giving think, the interns assignments, giving the architects assignments. Do you think I could make more money that way? That's a whole other podcast episode, too. <laughs> Uh, so do you do you draw any kind of line between uh, renderings that are of new buildings and renderings like of apartments that are trying to sell the apartments? Is there more? Because those are like, mm. I feel like very much just advertising. Yeah. And I don't think, well, actually, I think people probably take the renderings of apartments with more of a grain of salt right. than the renderings of buildings. Because if you've ever looked for an apartment, you've already dealt with the wide angle lens 
um, yeah. photos of the apartments. Your, your bullshit detector is on high alert and you're looking <laughs> exactly, at apartments. Exactly, exactly. Sorry, I just, I, we were just planning a vacation and we were looking at the wide-angle lens pictures of lots of Airbnbs. And so yeah. <laughs> this is very much on my mind. Um, so, yeah, I think people understand better how to, you know, correct for real estate inflation in terms of interiors than they do in terms of exteriors. Right. Just, I mean, it, it has to do with experience and being in the room that you've seen the photograph of. And, of course, I mean, for apartments, like, if places have the money, they, you know, do... Um, they prop them out so you can actually visit. But a lot of times in New York, apartments are sold before they're completed. And so then, yeah, to buy an apartment on a rendering seems really scary to me, but people do do it. I mean, I guess if you have that much money at your disposal, yeah, it's like, well, <laughs> I'll just sell it and buy well, yeah. a new one. <laughs> That's true. And people flip, flip them and people out. People do. Yeah. All right, well, now we want to move along to our Thunder Round segment, which is we're calling Thunder Round because it's never really lightning fast. Okay. It's you know. slightly slower than lightning. <laughs> yeah, uh, well, we you're just You're making wanna... me nervous now. <laughs> no, you, you, you've done this before. You're, you're an expert. Uh, so we thought for, for this, um, we could give you, we could maybe put you on the spot a little bit and give you some really weird renderings that we found and just see if you could describe them. And we'll post the links. <laughs> and like, uh, these are, these are, I will say difficult to describe renderings uh, and just like see how you do, right? Is that cool? Alexandra okay. looks right. hesitant. <laughs> I, I'm worried now. Here's number one. Okay. Number one. Uh, okay. Number one is a tower on the waterfront that looks a little bit like a spaceship that has been embraced by an alien sponge. Yeah. I would oh, say that, pretty, that pretty much great. Good, <laughs> that is, in fact, uh, something called the NYC Eco Tower Museum that is meant to symbolically capture the immigrant experience of arriving in an unfamiliar country and feeling completely lost. So I would say that was probably the least easy to describe because the entire concept of it is to make you feel disoriented. <laughs> wow. Well, is, it is that is that supposed to be built in New York? I think it was supposed to be at one point. Okay. These are all a few years old. I don't think that. Okay. They... My eyes are very wide now. <laughs> and, I'm, and I'm backing away from the rendering. Uh, let's see. Here's one, I think, a little similar to what we've talked about. Okay, yes. Oh, these, yes, there are many, many trees on these towers. There are five of them. They seem to be made of some kind of silvery pod stacked on top <laughs> of each other against the laws of gravity. And then there are trees growing on top. Oh, and in some places, the pods have shifted so far out of line that you can see a slab-like skyscraper in the middle of them. Right, they look almost like very bad spines. Yeah, that looks, it looks maybe a little bit um, like some of the work that Thomas Heatherwick has done. That's the first thing I said when I saw it. In it Southeast looks like Asia. the Singapore, yeah, the yeah. kind of work he's done for universities in Singapore. You're too good at this. Oh, <laughs> see, I've seen too many. Uh, yeah. Those are, in fact, Vincent Calibo. I don't know how to pronounce that. Uh, farm scrapers. They're supposed to be skyscrapers with farms. Oi. Yeah. Not buying it. <laughs> uh, here's another one. I like this one. Okay, so this is, um, this is four masts that look sort of like um, the bridge in Rotterdam whose name I've forgotten, that are attached to a giant 
uh, translucent dome that's attached <laughs> to a building that looks like it has a road on top, like that famous um, building in Rio. So this is, yeah, this is your bridge and your dome and your road building all connected <laughs> together. And there are also a lot of trees on top of this building. Yeah. Uh, the way this was described on Inhabitat, I believe, was a glass dome center surrounded by sinuous line of, si of skyscrapers that radiates out from the core. Yeah. But it's so much more than it that, is. actually. That doesn't oh, really yeah. capture it. Yeah. Also, ugh. <laughs> that does not sound like a building with like a harmonious program at all. Yeah, well, it. I mean, it looks like the future um, kind of dystopian novel a la High Rise because right. I don't see how you'd ever find your way out of this building. Yeah, you're, all not, the, you're not meant to leave. The, <laughs> the four leaders stuck. of this dystopian world live at the top of each of the four skyscrapers, I think. And then everybody else is stuck in the glass <laughs> dome. And I hope each of them has um, a different colored robe that's color yes. coordinated with his apartment. I'm sorry. I'm almost certain. The two, of you, the two of you are like writing a dystopic <laughs> yeah. novel right in front of my eyes. This is amazing. Uh, yeah. So um, what else do we got for the Thunder Round? Oh, so part of our, our research that we do for these podcasts is we just will go on the guest Instagram and see, and see what's been up. So we understand you <laughs> recently got back from New Zealand. Yes. Um, I was invited by the New Zealand Institute of Architects to go to New Zealand and tour their architecture. I'm so jealous. And since I had never thought that I would make it to New Zealand in my lifetime, I said yes. And um, they planned an amazing tour for me. I went to you know four or five different places and saw a lot of the contemporary work as well as some older things. And How it was old? really fabulous. <laughs> How old? Yes. Did you see the Hobbit Village, for example? I did not go <laughs> to the Hobbit Village, but... Um, I took, well, you know, I just, I couldn't bring myself to take a selfie. I was standing there. So in the Wellington airport, it says on the outside of the airport, welcome to Middle Earth. And then you go inside the airport and Smaug's head is in the airport. Oh my God. And I couldn't believe it. And I was like, oh my God, I have to take a selfie of myself with Smaug for my kids. And I, you know, I, I put the camera on the other way around and I, I, I lifted it up and I was like, no, I can't do this. You got so, you got so close. <laughs> yeah, I got so close. So I just took a picture of Smaug's head, which is in and of itself quite a glorious large object. Totally. Um, so that was as close as I got to Hobbiton. Though, no, actually that's not true. So there's um, Mount Victoria is the highest mountain in, around Wellington. Mm -hmm. And so um, one of my excellent guides took me to the top of that and Mount Victoria is part of a green belt that was part of the original British town planning for Wellington. Um, and some scenes um, from the Lord of the Rings movies were actually filmed in the green belt because parts of it, even though it's like right in the middle of town, parts of it um, have thick enough old growth forests to serve for some, you know, hobbit forest. Cool. Yeah, which is, is pretty it, cool. Is it, would you say, hard to go to New Zealand and not run into something? You know, it's only in, well, it's in Wellington oh. because that's where... Um, WETA or W-E-T-A, the, the studios are, and and like half the tourists that go to Wellington go on some <laughs> yeah. sort of Lord of the Rings tour. Yeah. Um, and then in the South Island, I went to Christchurch, which is sort of on the north side of the South Island, but down in Queenstown and the, you know, kind of more, well, it's all very scenic, but even more scenic part of New Zealand, <laughs> which I didn't go to because I was looking at architecture, um, is where they filmed more of it. And so I think if you go down south, you also get more 
Hobbit tourism. Right. That is my fantasy of going to New Zealand and it just all being Middle Earth. <laughs> it's not like that. And no, it's disappointing. Dreams dashed. <laughs> and please don't tell them that. <laughs> Go there. They're going to be so offended. Yeah, it's, I probably won't get there. It's okay. Yeah. <laughs> So I had a quick thunder round question for you. Okay. So um, for readers who don't, for listeners who don't know, um, Alexandra wrote about an awesome iPhone game called Monument Valley for us um, last year, and it was an awesome piece. And the game is fantastic. And if you don't play it on your phone, if you're not even a game person, like an iPhone game person, but you love architecture and design, like this is the iPhone game for you. It's great. Um, so you know, just thinking about iPhone games and Monument Valley, it got me thinking about whether or not you're still playing iPhone games, and one game specifically called Neko Atsume. Have you heard of it? Is that the cat one? Yes. Okay, so <laughs> I actually, I, I never play iPhone games except for Monument Valley. So your okay. description of it is perfect because I'm, um, I'm, I mean, I'm really interested in games and kind of game space, and I am constantly learning about them through my kids. But then I go and try to play them, and most of them I'm just like, oh, what am I doing? What am <laughs> right. I doing? Um, Monument Valley is not that way at all. I just thought Monument Valley was, you know, so beautiful and challenging and kind of the right amount of absorptive yeah, for, a, it's a for an iPhone game. game. Which yeah, is it's a great. puzzle game. Um, so, yes, I, I'm still pro Monument Valley. And I read an article about the cat game mm -hmm. and I thought oh this sounds like a game for me I think you'd like so it I'm obsessed I need, with it maybe I need Jeremiah to... makes fun of me about it but it's great maybe I should try it and report back because please do the one the one wrinkle in my possible love for it is that I don't like cats that's fine because <laughs> if you don't like cats for reasons that have to do with what they're like in the real world none of those reasons are a factor Okay. In the digital, okay. in the digital environment, okay. um, but I bring it up because it's a pop. It's a pretty popular game, despite Jeremiah's skepticism of the game, which is noted and understood. I, I get mean, it, I'm not going to play it because I'm afraid that I'll like it, and then all of my <laughs> <laughs> all my making fun of will be proven wrong. Right. But each each um, each game includes like several uh, like home styles, so you can oh, okay. choose from like a modern home or a western home or a rustic home. It's kind of ridiculous. I'm gonna. I'm showing Alexandra the game on my phone right now. Okay. Um, well, is this the modern home? This is the the Western home. There's like you know some okay. cacti outside. So oh, okay. is this is a is this a home you've like built up and like put things in, or does it just come like this? Maybe I I see a little judgment on your face, but that's fine. <laughs> I, I'm just trying to you know become educated. Yes, it is a home that I've built up and put things in for the cats. Yeah. Um, well, it's interesting because um, the 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 way they've drawn the space, the kind of semi cartoony um, interior home photo way, is the same way um, they draw the spaces in the Toka Boca games, which are this. I don't know those. Oh, what they, are those? I've written about those before. That's the set of games for small kids, probably seven and under. Um, it, it's a Swedish design studio, and they have one called Toka Town, Toka City, Toka School, <laughs> and basically it it lets kids like rearrange the furniture and make things in the kitchen and like write things on the chalkboard. They're really cute. I mean, I think it's really the um, it's the equivalent of a dollhouse because you can kind of right. set up scenes. And the amazing thing is that um, kids can also video the scenes they're making. So my five year old can kind of do a little scene where two characters are talking to each other and take a video of it and then play it back for me. 
That's which I feel like really eerie <laughs> in terms of, in terms of just making interaction design really simple is incredible to me. Yeah, that's true. That a five year old can can do all of those things in the game is amazing. Yeah, and also I never told her how to work it. Like maybe her older brother told her a few things, but she just does it. How old is her older brother? He's eight. All right. So I mean, you probably got smart kids. So there's that too. <laughs> well. You don't I, have to be humble I, about I, it. <laughs> I, would, I would never say that. Um, but it's interesting. I feel like now I have to play this game and see how different it really is yes. from the game designed for three to seven-year-olds. <laughs> <laughs> probably not that much. Yeah, your yeah. kids could probably figure that one out pretty easily, too. So, yes, yes if you love uh, design, interiors, architecture, Monument Valley, Neko Atsume, they did not pay us for this. Mm -hmm. I'm just saying it because I love them. I think they're both great games. And yeah. for your kids, Toka Boga. And some <laughs> yeah, spec exactly. sponsorships. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, thank you so much for coming in and chatting with us. This is really great. And um, we'll be keeping an eye on your, on your magnum opus about renderings anytime now. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks so much for listening. Uh, if you enjoyed the podcast, please rate us five stars in the iTunes store. And leave a shining review. And remember to subscribe. <laughs>